You're listening to Two for Tea. I'm your host, Iona Italia. And I'm her frequent co-host, Helen Pluckrose. This is a podcast about politics, society, science and art. And about how everyone is wrong apart from us. This podcast is brought to you in association with ARIO magazine, a digital forum for calm, reasonable voices from across the political spectrum. The podcast is entirely listener-supported. To become a patron and gain access to patron-only broadcasts and other perks, support us on Patreon at 2 for Tea. Welcome to The Conversation. Our guest this week is Jesse Single, who is a contributing writer at the New York Magazine, the author of a forthcoming book called The Quick Fix. And we're going to talk to Jesse about uh, various topics, uh, probably beginning with his adventures uh, covering the beat of trans issues. Hello, Jesse. Welcome. Hi. Thank you guys for having me. Our pleasure. Can you talk to us about um, how and why you first became interested in or were first commissioned to write about trans issues? Whether your your um, views on the subject have evolved and changed as you've investigated more? Sure. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. I, I was originally... I, 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 I see this as sort of a subbeat of mine. I, I usually cover, um, you know questionable social science, particularly psychology, um, has, has been my main niche, although I've written about other stuff too. But a few years ago, I wrote a, I read a book uh, called Galileo's Middle Finger by Alice Drager, um, who's a wonderful, mm-hmm. uh, basically a science historian, but also an activist for intersex people. And um, it, it told stories about different areas where activism had clashed with science. And it, I, I think that's a little bit of a false dichotomy. That's just a simplified way of summing it up and some of her stories centered around michael bailey who wrote a very controversial book about transgender people and and the reaction to his work and basically from there it was sort of a short walk to learning about a clinic in toronto uh that had gotten shut down because ken zucker its leader had been accused of conversion therapy and i ended up writing a long investigative article showing that many of the claims against him were either false or distorted. Uh, in my view, the whole thing had been a witch hunt and the clinic had been shut down for no reason that like good reason that had been proven. Um, that was the first article I wrote on the stuff that really drew controversy. Mm-hmm. So the, the Blanchard book was, um, no, sorry, it's the Bailey. It's Alice, it Dra- Alice Drager writing about yes, Michael Alice Drager, but the, um, Michael Bailey's book was called "The Man Who Would Be Queen." Yep, am I correct? That's the that's the one. Yeah, and it, it has to do with um, Ray Blanchard's uh, model of basically of of why male to female trans people are trans, which is genuinely a whole other podcast of its own. But it's a very controversial idea among some trans people, and they they view his model as sort of not capturing their experiences or or. Uh, treating them as fetishists. And in my view, Drager's book was less about defending that research than whether or not basically academic freedom, because Bailey dealt with a wave of harassment and false charges, uh, basically for writing a book about this idea. Hmm. If I can just, because I remember reading that, that uh, book quite a while ago, actually, maybe about 15 years ago. Um, 
And I think it was the first time that I thought about this subject in any detail. Um, and I remember that he had two categories of, of male to female transsexuals or trans, uh, trans women, we would call them now. Um, and one category was homosexual transsexuals, he called them. So it was, it was very, uh, very, very effeminate, uh, young men, um, who just felt more, um, comfortable transitioning to be, to being women and having, in order to have relationships with men, but from within a, a, a female role. Mm. And the other category, which I think was even more controversial was the, um, autogynephilic, um, mm. am I correct? Am I saying this correctly? Autogynephilic transsexuals? Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Um, which was, uh, um, men who transitioned and became women because they were, um, they got, uh, an erotic thrill from the idea of themselves as women. Yeah, which is, is obviously extremely um, controversial, and, and people have said that this um, just completely invalidates uh, trans identity and, and is a kind of um, a kind of paranoid mind reading, which um, you know reduces reduces the experience to the to the sort of lowest possible um, manifestation. You know, so I. Um, I, I try. I try generally to avoid the whole subject of autogynephilia because it, it's not. It, 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 oh, I'm It's it's so heated, and then so much in the in the arguments around it come down to to mind reading and um, sort of guessing other people's motivations. But yeah, as, as Jesse was was saying, I, I think that the problem more was more with whether you agree with that concept or whether you think that it's feasible to diagnose this in somebody else it, and less right. to, and more to do with whether the people should be allowed to to talk about it whether they should be allowed to sort of raise different hypotheses and look into them which which well, is think... uh, something that's um, really not happening very much at the moment well I don't want to talk over Jesse and I'll hand the mic to you in a second. Um, but I, I remember a couple of things that, uh, remarks that Alice Drager made about it. And one was that, that, um, and I think I agree with this, which is if an adult, if a consenting adult, um, wants to remodel their body in some way, or if a consenting adult wants to transition, um, I can't see who that harms and I so I don't feel that I don't know that it's important what the motivation is. So if people really were motivated let's say by this kind of strict dual scheme that Bailey outlines which seems unlikely to me but let's say they they were. Um I don't really I'm not uh I I don't really kind of feel any sort of distaste um for that. I think, why not? Whatever, whatever floats your boat, whatever you want to do is fine. Um, and, um, I think Drager's view on this was that, um, one of the problems was that, um, people feel, uh, people very often feel strongly that 
in order for trans identity to be respectable, it can't be bound up with sexual desire. So one problem with this model, with this simplified model, is that both of these theories, I guess, hypotheses, or guesswork, as you put it, about why people might, might, why specifically uh, trans women might be, what might be motivating older trans women, um, is a desire for a more fulfilled uh, sexual experience. And that that is somehow, um, somehow reduces the dignity of trans people by making it all about sex. And I think Drager's point was that um, it doesn't matter if it's all about sex, that actually the kind of, the, when you most have the strongest sensation of um, who you are uh, sexually, i.e. whether when you feel the most male, female, or, um, or however it is that you feel, uh, is in a sexual situation. Um, when you're desiring someone or fantasizing or having sex or choosing a partner, that's when you're most aware of and keen on. And that's kind of, um, Drager was saying, that is the purpose of, or one of the kind of main purposes of feeling like a sexed person is to feel like a sexual person. You get sexual pleasure from this kind of view of yourself and your interaction with others through that view of yourself. Mm. <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, I, Jesse, I, oh, no, no, I, I, sorry, I, I just think it's it's really complicated, and a lot of the um, people desire to be seen in a certain way, and there's a lot of weight put on the question, not just of how are we going to treat people and are we going to give them access to transition resources, but do we see them exactly as they want to be seen? And that comes from a long history of trans people being told they're liars or they're mentally ill or they're not really who they say they are. So, you know, I, I, I stand by my views on academic freedom. And I think Michael Bailey was, was harassed and slandered and all that. At the same time, I do think sort of, old school sexologists haven't always done a good job understanding that they're, um, you know, they're studying people's lives and they have some obligation to listen to those people and uh, understand the potential impact of their work. It, it, it just, it all gets horribly complicated because as you're saying, you could believe in autogynephilia and believe that, you know, people should be able to transition, which in fact was what Blanchard and Bailey did. I just, um, yeah, part of the reason I, I this this subject, um, it's just easy to sort of be misunderstood talking about autogynephilia, and I also think the science is shaky in two directions. I, I think it's unlikely that sort of the two type typology just explains everything about the trans experience. That's just very unlikely. Mm -hmm. I also some of the quote unquote debunkings of of autogynephilia they don't actually debunk the idea that some people could have these feelings. And I think even really smart, thoughtful debunkings by trans people acknowledge, like for some people, this explains and gives order to their experiences. Someone I once, um, I was DMing with someone, I think I'd contacted them for another, uh, quoted them in another story about um, something marijuana related, but it came up that they, they viewed themselves as sort of a burgeoning autogynophile and they wanted resources for how to understand that aspect of themselves. So I think at the end of the day, either you accept people's stories about who they are and respect them, even if you don't quote unquote, believe them a hundred percent or you don't. And if you respect them, 
you should acknowledge that some people do feel this way and think that it, it gives meaning to their experience. Hmm. Mm. Well, I, I do think that all, I mean, I believe in a kind of radical sense that all autobiography is fiction. That whenever you give an account of your identity, you're giving, in a sense, a constructed, created account, one that makes sense to you and, and is useful, enjoyable, um, helpful for you. Um, so you're also sort of instructing people in how to treat you, how to see you. And I think that's completely valid. Yeah. Well, and I'm, and I, a huge amount of this current debate is at root about whether trans people are going to be excluded from housing or lose their jobs and have access to hormones. I think online and especially in sort of lefty spaces, it's a lot more philosophical and a lot more maybe ontological is the right word than it is mm -hmm. when like the average, the average person dealing with being trans in America or anywhere else has some very practical concerns, like sort of in, in much mm -hmm. the same way, mm -hmm. a member of any marginalized group. Like I, yeah, I don't, I don't mean to draw a comparison between gender identity and religion, but they're very different things, but you can, um, there's a difference between saying, I think Muslims have all the same rights as us need to have all the same rights and shouldn't be discriminated against and, and saying, I agree exactly with their interpretation of their doctrine. Obviously I can disagree with a Muslim person's religious views, but also believe they should have a full right to participate in society and not be discriminated against and all that because different, different trans people have very conflicting views on being what trans is. And that's why I think we should just take the liberal approach of everyone gets to tell their own stories. And as long as it doesn't hurt anyone else, we should accept those stories and not, you know, not poke and prod um, non-respectfully. Yeah. This, right. this was the argument James Lindsay and I made in our, um, uh, they say an argument for a liberal and rational approach to trans identity. But I, I think if, if I understand you correctly, you're, you're saying that we can, um, even though we are so, I mean, talking about lefties, talking about liberals um, as well, we can find a common ground here without having to agree on absolutely everything because so many more of us, whatever we actually think about gender, how we think it works, um, agree that people should be allowed to fulfil themselves, providing it doesn't affect anyone else. But then, yeah, we're, we become very divided on... Um, on on the philosophical level, I mean that the one question that makes my heart sink, whether it comes from a uh, gender critical radical feminist, often referred to as TERFs, or from a trans activist, is so how do you define woman? And that is a sinkhole which you just get lost in forever because the whole the premises are just coming from such different places. But do do you think, Jesse, that this whole sort of the the idea of um, the sort of social constructivism where we speak a reality into existence and, and that um, our knowledge is defined by dominant discourses underlines a lot of the trans activists' um, anxiety about people like you, about people like me, uh, giving, and Alice, of course, giving any quarter at all to uh, ideas which which don't simply accept um trans experience as it is portrayed yeah i think the worry okay there there are there are legitimate critiques one could make of 
any of the long stories I've written about this, what I often see is an argument like, well, this argument could be used to uh, not let trans people get access to hormones, or this argument could be used to force trans kids back in the closet. And um, for understandable reasons, it it doesn't matter how explicitly I say, no, that's not what I'm calling for at all. People are worried about how ideas will be used. And, and there's a reason for that. I mean, the concept the concept of IQ is a valid construct to a certain extent. It does it does predict certain things, but people reject it uh, out of hand because it's been used for bad purposes. And I, I think people get those two ideas confused, like whether or not a certain idea is valid and useful and whether or not it could be used toward bad ends. Because basically any idea could be used by bigots or, or hate mongers toward bad ends. And when you when you restrict the range of acceptable discussions and ideas to those which could never under any circumstances be used for bad ends, you're not left with much to talk about. Mm. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I feel that too, that there's a certain kind of performative nature to this, or I, I think of it as a kind of performative sloganeering that people do. So they want you to say specific words. So they want you to, for example, uh, you have all those people posting the phrase trans women are women. Um, and I find that a really interesting and um, problematic statement. And I'm very resistant to being told what to say. And I'm also, um, uh, you know, I don't have a clear uh, definition of where I would set the line. It depends what you mean by women. Um, are you talking about difference in size of gametes or are you talking about um, how you function socially um, or how you feel? Are you talking about neurology or some mixture of all those things? I don't have an answer to that, um, but I feel as though it's there has been this kind of bodlerized influence of postmodernism that uh Discourse isn't just reflecting reality or exploring ideas, but it's actually creating reality. Right. And therefore, if you just say enough times that trans women are women, then um, it has a sort of magical effect. It's talismanic. And I think we see this in other issues too. I mean, this is too large a topic to go into right now, but we see this with, for example, the N-word, um, that if you just say that word, you are automatically creating harm and attacking people, even if you are saying it in order to discuss the word itself. Or as recently, a friend of mine was hauled over the coals for a really long article she wrote, which was all about why we should not say this word. And she had one example of it right in the middle of the article. Um, and people went... Uh, crazy about the article because the article contained the word. Right. Um, and um, I see this also with fat activists too, that sometimes there's a, a, a sort of um, a belief, I think, that um, it's not so, it's not even so much that they are concerned about fat shaming and, um, 
rudeness and bullying, all of which I'm extremely against. Um, but just that you need to just say, um, if, if you just repeat as many times, enough times that uh, being overweight or obese has no impact on health, then it will become true. That all you need to do is just join the chorus of people saying this thing, that the words have a kind of magical imp impact. Yeah. And I find that very much in the trans, in some of the trans activists. So I don't even think it's a community or a group or anything like that. Just some trans activists, I notice this attitude. Yeah, I mean, I just, I think that's not, as you said, it's not restricted to trans activism. There is a subset of people, um, not just on the left, but on the right, that are are a little bit too fixated on language and the idea that if we just talk about things oh, yeah. the right way, everything else will sort itself out. And um, I think particularly when you're talking about A, online where everything's truncated and it's hard to fully lay out arguments and B, when it's gen like when it's people who don't have a lot of other power in other contexts, I could understand why, you know, if, if you feel like you're not given a voice, you're going to focus on language because that's something you can protest and, and, and try to control. And, and in some cases, language obviously can be harmful. I just think there's a tendency, not just in this issue, but um, in others to just absolutely fixate on language to the extent of everything else. I, I just, I did a piece for reason on, it was a silly article, like barely worth responding to, but this article saying that the language of space exploration is racist because a word like colony uh, erases the legacy of, um, you know, colonial harms. And it's just like, I, how could anyone who doesn't have a PhD in whatever agree with that? Or it, it just, it seems like engendered to designed to engender backlash rather than advance any advance the world toward justice or understanding. It's just it, I, the word language policing is overused, but there are people who are just fixated on the idea of, of not of cleansing language of harmful influence. And I, I just don't think that's helpful for complicated issues. I, 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 I see quite a divide. I often say in so many arenas and um, particularly strongly when talking about um, uh, gender identity, is um, the divide between those of us who think that, I mean, we, we all think that language is important, but we see, you know, the idea that we can get somewhere by discussing ideas uh, vigorously, by arguing them out, by having them all in the arena at the same time and, and, um, and talking about them, versus the idea that that dominant discourses are structuring society and that we're all not we're all quite oblivious to it and so it actually is some kind of public service to really pick apart language at the level of the word and any interpretation which um can argue that this this here is evidence of a of a deeply ingrained bias which does harm to people is is to be accepted then if, if it's not if you don't accept that 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 is what it shows then you're you're perpetuating the problem you're part of the problem yeah, I mean, to the extent that um, online discourse is terrible right now, a lot of it is just that when people make a, a claim of harm, you're not allowed to sort of evaluate it like you would any other claim. You need to just accept it. Like, I accept that that, that language was harmful. And again, sometimes language is harmful. But if you have a system where there's sort of uh, promiscuous claims of harm and no one's allowed to say, 
you know, ask questions like, uh, was that actually harmful language? Would a reasonable person agree? I think that's why in a lot of places, it's just, it's getting harder and harder to talk about stuff. Mm. But Jesse, I want to ask you, I want to get away from consenting adults, uh, transitioning, <laughs> which I think all of us agree is a, um, is a perfectly valid thing. Um, to how you feel about uh, uh, trans children and where you might there have disagreements with some trans activists. And um, maybe you can talk to us a little bit about that and about the phenomenon of detransitioning. Sure. So the the two articles I've written that, that caused the most controversy, um, one, as I mentioned, was about the Toronto Clinic getting shut down uh, as a result of just a, a really sloppily conducted process, and and there was very little transparency there. There were false claims. It was it was just a mess. Um, you know that that centered around trans kids and adolescents, and the question of whether the clinic was being too conservative or was conducting so called conversion therapy, which I to this day I am not aware of a single actual claim of of an individual being. Um, exposed to conversion therapy there, at least during the period when I was, uh, well, during any period, but especially when I was doing my reporting. Um, and then more recently I had, I had a cover story in the Atlantic, which just took a very wide view over 12 or 13,000 words of the complexities of young people with gender dysphoria. And the reason things are a little bit complex with young people is the research we have suggests that gender identity is a complicated subjective phenomenon. And, and it, often changes over time and there is a significant proportion of kids who at one time will feel gender dysphoric but then later on will not feel gender dysphoric it'll go away on its own and how significant that percentage is is a matter of incredibly heated debate uh this this phenomenon is known as desistance for a long time everyone said 80 percent of well not everyone but scientists said 80 percent of uh, trans or gender dysphoric kids will desist. I, I think that's probably an overestimate. But if you look at these studies very closely, it's clear that it's not at all unusual for gender dysphoria to go away on its own. And and every time I've really done in-depth reporting on the subject, it has been exceptionally easy to find young people who desisted. Uh, and that, like, it, if you had to sum all this chaos and all this controversy into one concept is desistance. Because if, if we didn't have evidence that gender dysphoria often goes away on its own, I don't think there'd be much to debate. We would just transition kids very young and, and that would be that. Hmm. I, I wonder that I, I, the, 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 what, what would you say to people who respond to that by saying, well, when we're focusing on um, desistance so much, we're, we're continuing to prioritise cisgendered people over transgendered people because we're kind of looking at a situation in which the possibility that somebody could be uh, mistaken is is so awful, it is so much worse than the possibility of somebody not being somebody who is trans not being believed. And th this was an argument that um, I think that Zinnia Jones made to me on Twitter saying, well, why? Why wouldn't we just say, yes, some people can, some kids can be wrong. They can take responsibility for that. Why is the onus on trans kids to suffer, not get treatment in time for them to, um, to have the full benefits of it just in case a cisgendered 
person has made a mistake. Do, do you do you, what? How would you answer that? Um, I, I think Zinnia does some good work on this, but I think framing it that way is a little bit of a false choice because, well, first of all, there's social transition, which doesn't involve any, you know, medical intervention, and then there's there's puberty blockers, which can start as early as, you know, it could be ten or eleven, and you take puberty blockers, and then usually you go on to take cross sex hormones. So, the developmental stage a child is at makes a big difference here. Um, Mm-hmm. but I guess I would say you don't, you don't have to choose between letting a kid suffer or, or being sure about the outcome. They're basically, we need a lot more gender therapists and what gender therapists do is they take kids through this process of exploring who they are and, and figuring out, you know, how set their identity is, how deep seated it is. And, and the, the most well-known model for this is the the so-called Dutch clinic in Amsterdam where they, they didn't rush kids to transition. They also didn't prevent kids from transitioning. They were they went through a process of let's figure out who you are. Most importantly, let's figure out where your distress is coming from. And I, I talked to some incredibly talented therapists who I quoted, um, particularly one psychologist, one psychiatrist, who these are these are not people who are want kids to suffer. They're people who understand that gender identity and identity in general are, are extremely complicated. So what surprised me was their their view was not I have this kid in front of me uh, at our first appointment. We got to figure out if they're cis or trans. Their view was like let's slow it down. Let's talk to you about what is causing you distress and let's address what is distressing you. The they it wasn't as though the focus was instantly on gender identity. It's I think it's a much more when it's done well, uh, gender therapy is a much more complicated and sometimes gradual process than people make it out to be. When we talk about this, we have so much focus on that outcome of of what identity are you? Who are you? Are you a boy or a girl? Competent gender therapy isn't done that way. It's just it's just much more gradual. And you know, these kids talk about everything from trauma they've endured to gendered roles sort of foisted upon them. And sometimes in the course of going through a little bit of therapy, their views on gender change. So all these therapists are trying to do is make sure that if they are at a point of undergoing permanent uh medical procedures that they're ready for it and that and that they're sure they want to go through with it um people overstate the percentage of claims of situations where if a kid doesn't get hormones right now they're at imminent risk of harm Th- those situations exist but the the median case is a lot more complicated than that i want I to ask i want to ask jesse about the medical effects of puberty blockers so um are those effects permanent? And if not, uh, why don't we just delay everybody's puberty? Because frankly, I think it would be much better if everybody went through puberty at age 20, <laughs> when we we're all a lot more mature and able to deal I, with I our sexuality. Oh, I actually did go through puberty at age 20, but that's not true. Um, <laughs> uh, I'm still going through it. Exactly. But, you know. puberty, so puberty blockers... Um, if you'd asked me this four months ago, I could have told you exactly how long uh, you can stay on, the, or most kids can stay on them without harm. You you can't be on them for that long. Long it does cause, um, I think osteoporosis is one of the side effects. Like it, it affects your bones basically, and it might affect other stuff. And there's developmental considerations too, because your classmates and your peers are non puberty blockers, so you don't want a kid sort of um, stuck in in a form of suspended animation. So I think puberty blockers are one of those things where some parent groups online that are skeptical of child transition 
overstate the dangers of puberty blockers, but I also think some trans activists understate, you know, this is a pretty big decision to delay puberty. You are, you are interfering with the natural bodily process. So I, I guess what I just keep coming back to is these kids should be thoroughly assessed and should have a competent gender clinician who's actually well-versed in the research, helping them make that decision. I, I don't think kids who are severely dysphoric should have to go through natal puberty. I, I believe trans people when they say that's incredibly harmful and, and causes a lot of anguish, but it's pretty, just, it causes a pretty great deal of anguish anyway, of course, yeah. um, you know, for many people. So I, I can certainly imagine that. Sorry, continue, carry on. Oh, no, yeah. I think I might have um, uh, rambled just because it's a complicated subject. But what um, – sorry, what was the exact question about puberty blockers, just side effects? And um, well, let's say, well, let's say, yes. Let's say, for example, that I'm a kid um, who um, – and I believe that I'm trans and I go on puberty blockers uh, to stop my puberty from happening and then I change my mind. Um, what happens then – uh, is there any permanent damage done to me? I think if I change my mind at that stage. Yeah, I think as long as you have competent care and you're being monitored by an endocrinologist and everything, I, I don't. I think once you go off the blockers, your normal puberty will kick in normally. That that's what we're told, and that's what the evidence we have suggests. That would, you know, it's not a nothing medical procedure, but it but it it is reversible. And I people shouldn't overstate the harms, but people also shouldn't. It's a tool that shouldn't be used lightly. But yeah, the short answer is. Uh, most kids who go on puberty blockers do not. Most kids who go on puberty blockers do go on to cross sex hormones based on the data we have. The ones who don't, uh, in theory, their normal puberty should kick in and they'll just go through it a little bit later than, than most other kids. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. That's interesting. Um, it seems, it seems like a, a lot of this comes, um, down to the, the the need to get rid of simplistic ideas that are that are sort of ideologically rooted in in which we either favor um dysphoric uh, children who later desist or we uh favor trans children and um and whether we what 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 we're accepting i think we're seeing over and over again that that people are too quick to to seize upon a narrative to collect a whole number of of arguments and points uh, for their side and then just sort of throw them at each other without 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 any any ability really to to meet in the middle to compare premises to understand that we're generally coming from a point of wanting to do the best thing for um, for trans people and and for those who are suffering uh, dysphoria for some other reason. Yeah, and I well, I think um, I, I think that's exactly it. The, the extent to which this conversation among left of center people who, who generally agree, it, it's taken on this sheen where everything is is black and white. It's either or. Even subjects like desistance and detransition, just they get really quickly politicized to the point where either you're quote unquote for quote unquote against trans people or trans kids when over and over in in hours and hours spent talking to clinicians, they're able to juggle a lot of different thoughts at the same time. Like every clinician, every competent clinician knows desistance sometimes happens. And every competent clinician knows that it's possible someone will transition and regret it. And they're able to 
I mean, that's, that's what medical decision making is. That's what bioethics is. It's weighing different concerns and, and just trying to maximize the best possible outcomes. And I, I think the most important idea I heard over and over in talking to clinicians was they try to urge their clients not to engage in what they call rigid thinking. And, and especially in young kids, rigid thinking could be as little, as simple as, you know, I can't be a boy with long hair or, or I can't be a girl who, um, who likes to play sports. I don't, I don't want to caricature it, but with really young kids, sometimes they need to do very basic work of explaining to them socialized gender mores and roles. And, and the right. idea that that stuff couldn't interfere with a kid's burgeoning sense of gender identity is silly. Of course it could. We all have tremendous pressure put on us to perform gender and to be a quote unquote real man or woman. And uh, yeah, the rigid thinking that it's all biological or it's all social or it's all contagion. It's just the more you learn about this stuff, the more you realize how complicated it is. So would you, um, one of the things we see a lot at the moment is um, a claim that as soon as a child or young person says that they, they feel they might be trans, there's a great pressure from from clinicians to affirm this and a, a pressure on parents uh, to affirm this. Do, do you do you think that's um, overstated, that, that the majority of clinicians in the area are still doing very sort of um, balanced individual-centered work? I think it's complicated. I, I At this point, I've been leaked a lot of threads from these um, closed parenting groups. I, po- I, I apologize for the grandfather <laughs> clock. I don't oh, know okay. if you can hear that. Let's give it a sec just so we can um... – oh, yeah, it's kind of pretty, though. It's Big Ben. There's nothing more Anglophile than a Parsi household. <laughs> Parsi. Um... So, yes, you, you'd started. It's complicated. As right. Okay. <laughs> so it's so... going to chime uh, nine times because it's 9 p.m. Oh. Okay. We'll just let it do its okay. thing. Oh, there it goes. Um... Okay. Okay, yeah, and and we'll just we can edit it so it sounds like I'm answering directly, but um, I, I think, think it's, it's really fine, complicated. Actually, right? we'll add oh, some charm. <laughs> yeah, exactly. A little bit of real. Here's what it's really like to record a podcast. Um, I, I I think it's an overstatement to just even here. I I wouldn't want to make sort of a rigid black or white statement of of kids are or aren't getting rushed into transition. I I will say anecdotally and from my reporting, there are a lot of parenting groups. If you go online to sort of groups of parents of trans and gender questioning kids, and you mention your kid has some gender dysphoria, it's more likely than not, you'll be, you'll be routed to toward transition rather than just taking a deep breath and helping your kid explore. And the concept of suicide comes up almost immediately, a lot of the time, as though the moment your five-year-old questions their gender, you need to transition them or they'll kill themselves, which is just, as one of my clinicians said, it's just, it's not a good way to enter a period of exploration. Obviously, if your kid really is suicidal, that's one thing. But the idea that it's just immediate transition or death, it, I think a lot of parents get that in their head and they're not helpful. And on the um, on the clinician side, there is, there's no, you can't, exaggerate the difference between supply and demand here. I think there's a huge number of people hanging out shingles as gender clinicians who have no idea what they're doing. And and I've just, again, this is mostly anecdotal, but there's so many stories of, of just incompetent clinical care and parts of the country where there are no gender clinicians and gender clinicians who are being taught this really simple sort of gender bred person model where everyone has a gender identity just stuck in their brain 
innate from birth, which I think really understates the complexity of all this again. Could you, so what, I'm I'm also slightly confused by um, gender non-conforming, non-binary identities. Yeah. Um, sorry, I'm a boomer, you know, um, people have to bear with no, me. No, it's okay. It's, um, I mean. At, so can you say something about sure. that? At, at root. Where that fits in. Yeah, sorry. No, um, at root, gender non-binary <laughs> just means someone who doesn't feel male or female. Um, and. In some cases, that's because of gender dysphoria. In some cases, if, if you read accounts of gender non-binary people, it's um, in their own words, they seem to be saying it, it's a little bit political. Like it's, it's a rejection of gender roles and gender norms. Whereas I think most trans people who transition, it's not about gender roles or norms. It's a, a really deep part of who they mm -hmm. are. It's gender dysphoria. So part of the reason it's tough to define is that right now, the language is so broad and rapidly changing that that people can come out as non-binary and be accepted as that for for a variety of different reasons. And you know, often they'll ask uh, to be referred to with they pronouns rather than he or she. But at root, it just means someone who feels themselves to not be male or female, or not fully male or fully female. Mm. And a, a, a criticism of, of that is is often that you know a majority of people feel. As kind of displaced within sort of social ideas of of gender, so I think yeah, as Jesse was just saying, it, it, we really do see quite a lot of um, political uh, statements of um, I am I am non-binary, as well as well as this um, sort of strong feeling of um, of, of of gender. And um, I wonder, I understand that um, quite often autistic people are more likely to have this sense of, of not fitting uh, within a gender well, which, um, do, do you know much about about that? I understand that the sort of ideas, um, the, the science on um, um, brain structure and brain function and its relation to, to gender is growing quite quite quickly. But is is still quite confusing. Is is that the yeah? Status? I am. Um, I'm not up on sort of the the latest and greatest research. There's been a correlation between gender dysphoria and uh, autism spectrum disorder forever, and it's really well established. It was funny while I was reporting on this, a a young scholar published an article trying to argue that there wasn't in fact a correlation and behind the scenes there were a lot of sort of older respected gender clinicians like who were pissed off about it because they they don't. There's a, there's a little bit of an activist push to decouple the two to say there isn't uh, a correlation between gender dysphoria and, and autism, but, but it's just very well established at this point that any sample you take of gender dysphoric kids, more of them than you would expect uh, are on the spectrum, more of them than you would expect by chance alone are on the spectrum. And, you know, the reasons for that, I think we're really not sure. I think there's some theories, but uh, those two are, are incredibly controversial. It does seem strange that when um, trans activists who, who want trans identity to be accepted seem to push against quite a lot of the, of the science, which shows, which, which is increasingly showing, yes, there's something we can see here. There's a biological basis for trans identity here. We're not entirely clear on it. There's some contradiction, but that when people who want trans identity to be accepted as a real 
thing as an inherent uh, biological thing then push against science which seems to support their case i i, I find it difficult to to understand I, the motivation I, behind that i think that. i i might disagree with you on that because um I think maybe a few trans activists have pushed pushed against the autism link, but if anything, I see the opposite, where whenever there's a study that seems to show evidence of a quote-unquote trans brain, I actually think those studies are are celebrated and embraced, even when they, I, I think they're really early and, and no one's come close to showing a quote-unquote trans brain. But I think what people fail to realize is you can, like, let's say there is uh, something called a trans brain. You could use that to oppress trans people. You could say, oh, we need to breed it out. We need to monitor kids for the trans brain. We need to abort them. You could think of all sorts of, you know, horrible things you could do with that information. By that same token, if there's no biological footprint, if it's all something about their upbringing or something about socialization, you could you could also do horrible things to trans people. You could say, we need to prevent moms from raising their boys in two gentle away or whatever the theory used to be. I, I just think people act like there's a one-to-one correlation between scientific findings and moral and political outcomes. And there just, there just isn't like if, if people who hate trans people are driven by disgust and fear, I think, uh, or sort of an inability to deal with ambiguity and, and whatever stories they can use to justify their feelings, they'll, they'll pick and choose like it's a buffet. It's not, it's not one-to-one is my argument. Mm, mm. Mm. Can you tell us, Jesse, um, I, I do want to go on to talking a little bit about um, other um, questionable sociologies. You described it, which is the topic of your book. Um, but I wanted to just talk a little bit about your own um, uh, ways in which you've uh, fallen foul of certain trans activists. Um, you don't have to name anybody. But I want to know... Um, what their quarrel is with you, as far as you can tell. And, um, uh, yeah, can you say a little bit, because you've become somewhat of a controversial figure, and I'd like you to have a chance to put your case. Sure. Um, yeah, I mean, the, at root, when I wrote this story about Ken Zucker, the uh, doctor who got fired and his clinic shut down, I was viewed as quote-unquote, defending conversion therapy. Uh, so many rumors had been spread about Zucker and his clinic, and it was established as a quote-unquote fact that they did conversion therapy. But I, I, what I found did not suggest that that was true. I, even despite having, a, at the time, a good relationship with the activists who helped shut down the clinic, they couldn't put me in touch with a single person who had actually gone through conversion therapy there. And, and it was being claimed that he had done this to a huge number of kids and he had done tremendous harm. And it just came down to, as a journalist, like where, what are my obligations? And I, no one who reads my story would, would be left in the dark about what the activists in Toronto accused him of doing. But at a certain point, I either, I find evidence of it or I don't. And what I found a lot of evidence was, was that, was that the process was flawed. So I think that was the, the first time I became a somewhat controversial figure among some people um, is they saw me as, as defending conversion therapy when in fact I'm against conversion therapy, because I think it's both morally outrageous and practically speaking to be sort of crude about it. It's not, it's not going to work anyway. You're not going to convert a kid out of being trans. That, that isn't how any of this works. So 
yeah, that was that was the sort of first thing. And then more recently with the Atlantic story, um, I think there was a sense that I or we shown too bright a spotlight on detransitioners and desisters when there's still a lot of people who don't have access to um to transition resources. And you know, we mentioned that explicitly in the piece. There's huge numbers of trans people who don't have access to hormones, don't have access to surgery, don't even have access to basic mental health services. But I think the idea was especially in light of my prior research on Zucker and the idea that I had already quote unquote defended conversion therapy. Why is the Atlantic giving a cover story, uh, you know, to someone who in their mind have questionable views on this stuff. So if, if you were to, and I, I have a feeling I already know what you're going to say. If you have an appeal to everybody who is trying to talk about, about the rights and dignity and acceptance of transgender people, what what would it be? Uh, embrace the complexity and, and understand that if there's certain subjects that if we don't understand them better now and don't look into them now, including desistance and detransition, if we don't better understand why some people desist and why some people detransition, that could be a ticking time bomb down the road. I, 10 years from now, do you want a world in which there's lawsuits in which there's quacks running around harming gender nonconforming people? I, I just think we, we need to steadily advance the science as compassionately as we can and stop acting like there's only one story here where someone was born trans and transitions and lives happily ever after, because that does happen. But there's a huge number of people who are just uh, take a more complicated path than that. That's brilliant. I, I couldn't agree more. Oh, we, we I, I think we, we sort of come a bit to a, a kind of natural end anyway. Was, was there anything you wanted to ask Jesse about his, his upcoming um, yes, book? Yes, I'd like to. Like I don't know how much time you still have, Jesse. If you have a bit more time, I yeah, would love, love to, to talk, talk to you about. about yeah. Yeah, I'd like to talk about. Um, so, uh, Jesse, I believe you are writing a book about the replication crisis in sociology. Is that correct? Sorry, uh, sorry actually, um, it's it's more about psychology and particularly social psychology. Um, just, I, I think sociology comes up once or twice in the book, but it's way more about behavioral science. Okay, can you tell us uh, tell us about your book? Yeah, so uh, the, it's tentatively titled "The Quick Fix," and my book is a look at uh, instances in which we take really complicated situations and come up with sort of pithy, catchy, sexy solutions to them. Um, often solutions that are sort of propagated via TED Talks and ideas festivals and things like that. So, you know, one that I've already written a fair amount about is the implicit association test or the idea that you can sit ta sit down and take a 10-minute test on Harvard University's website and it'll reveal your your hidden racial bias. And this this test has absolutely exploded and it's been, you know, posited as a way to really help solve a lot of racial problems in the U.S. And there's very little evidence it predicts anything. And so the book is sort of about instances like that, where ideas that aren't quite ready for prime time or which don't have tremendous evidence behind them blow up more than they should and, and end up, in some cases, sucking all the oxygen out of the room. And uh, yeah, those are those are the basics. It's been very fun to write so far. Can you Can you tell us about some of those mm. or will that be too much of a spoiler? No, I mean, so one of them is the implicit association test. One of them is um, power posing, the idea that if you sort of spread your arms wise and adopt an aggressive pose, uh, you'll do better in negotiations and giving speeches and stuff like that. Same thing. There's a, a lot of 
attention given to it, but very little evidence it actually works. Another one that um, is a little bit more complicated, but is the notion of grit that that you can test a kid's sort of uh, stick to itiveness and and how likely they are to stick with difficult challenges. That that's a useful psychological instrument, and that you can increase their level of grit. And so, to me, grit is an example of how you take a really complicated situation, which is educational inequality in America, and and you reduce it to this one construct, grit, and you act as though it's just a matter of kids not having enough grit. And if we could teach kids more grit, that would improve outcomes. And it's such a inspiring, compelling story. And yet there's, there's way less evidence to support that than, than one might think. Is that related to the marshmallow test? Mm. Yeah. And it's, yes, it's often, um, they're talked about in the same, they're very similar concepts and the marshmallow test recently, more or less failed to replicate. Uh, it's a, a another fairly overhyped idea. So just just um, summarize the marshmallow test in case anybody doesn't know what it is. And yeah. it's a quick reminder. A, a uh, psychologist at, I think, Stanford name, uh, Stanley Mitchell. It's a wonderfully interesting and evocative and elegant experiment. He had a bunch of kids come into a lab. I'm, I'm sure I'm going to uh, blunder here and not tell it completely accurately, but basically... He'd put a marshmallow in front of a kid and say, you can either have this one marshmallow now or you can hold off for five or ten minutes. And if you wait and don't eat this one marshmallow, I'll give you two marshmallows. So it's an instance of uh, delayed gratification. And what they claim to have found is that kids who are able to delay gratification and wait for the two marshmallows did better later in life on a variety of fronts. Um, my understanding of, of why it may be failed to replicate or the effect was later shown to not be that strong is that there was what we call a range restriction issue. I believe all the kids who took the marshmallow test were the uh, kids of, of Ivy league professors. So this was already a very smart and privileged group. It wasn't sort of some random sample of American kids, but you know, people, this was such a powerful story about the importance of, you know, delayed gratification of having self-control and waiting for bigger rewards later on that the marshmallow test became sort of a, a, a three word symbol of a lot of quote unquote American values. And, and a lot of these experiments that seem to sum up something important about human nature spread far and wide, even when there's underlying problems with them or with their overinterpretation. Yes. I saw a meme when uh, Trump was elected. I think it was in the New Yorker. I think it might've been the New Yorker cartoon where somebody was um, holding out a marshmallow to Trump, and he said, "You can have, uh, you can have um, one marshmallow now, um, or uh, you can wait for. Um, you can have one marshmallow now, um, or how? What was it? Um, or you can wait for ten minutes, have two marshmallows, and be sworn in as U.S. president." And you see him sort of looking, trying to decide um, which way to go. All right, that's funny. Yeah, I think, I mean, I feel like there are a lot of these kind of pop psychology ideas. Um, I was always, I was very skeptical of the Amy Cuddy idea when I actually saw her TED talk. Um, if you've watched her talking, she's a very nervous speaker. She swallows, she has dry throat. She stands herself kind of hunched and nervous. And um, I'm very, you know, never trust the naked man who is selling you a T-shirt. If it were, if it were such a great theory, it would work for her too. Although 
maybe she would be even more nervous if she didn't power pose before her before her talks um So do you think that there are, so are there some fixes that have proven to be helpful and useful? Um, I think it's tricky. I think basically any, any idea that is going to solve a real world problem is probably going to have to have some complexity to it. There's a, I wrote about this uh, anti-bullying intervention that actually won, uh, won its creator a MacArthur grant that involves mapping a school's social network, uh, figuring out who the most connected kids are, figuring out who the kids are who talk to the most other kids. And rather than piling all the kids into an auditorium to give them a their millionth lecture about how bullying is bad, this intervention simply takes the most connected kids in a school, has them meet with a couple adults and say, look, we're trying to tamp down on bullying. We want you to be sort of a model of how to step in and prevent bullying when you see it occur. And um this intervention just it, it relies on a lot of fairly sophisticated ideas from social psychology about where we take our behavioral cues, like how we decide how to act and what sort of behavior is unacceptable. And it's, as you can tell from my not amazing description, it's hard to sum up in a sentence or two. It, it wouldn't necessarily be good fodder for a TED Talk, but that's this is the sort of intervention that has been shown so far to work. I mean, you can always learn more and learn that there's limitations or it doesn't work as well as you'd expect, but they did a big pilot study uh, in New Jersey in a bunch of schools and it, it appeared to work really well. Oh, and the, the professor who created it is uh, Betsy Levy Pollock and her work is very much worth looking up. But um, yeah, the contrast mm. I would draw is that I, I, I can't sum that up in a sentence. I can sum up power posing or the IAT in a sentence, but to me, effective interventions are a lot more complicated. Mm. I, th I think that that's the uh, the key word yeah, here, people. It is a lot more complicated. <laughs> yeah, I find always when I've read when I've read self help books, um, which claim to give you a, a, um, a quick fix of some kind, that I always feel very convinced when I'm reading the book, and then a week later I can't even remember what was in the book, let right. alone being able to incorporate it in some effective way. I think the yeah. only exception has been um, Daniel Levitin's mm -hmm. book, The Organized Mind. That was the only one which stayed with me. His idea that of unitax, unitasking, that you must always unitask. Uh, never multitask, always give your full attention mm. to one job at a time. I think that is the one piece of kind of quick fix advice that actually worked for me. I like that. I have trouble with that, that because, partly because that, of Twitter. That and the coffee nap. The, the coffee Mappuccino. nap. I think, I that, think science of us covered that, that when I was an editor there. The coffee <laughs> nap is very important. Mm -hmm. Well, please don't tell me it was debunked. Uh, as far because, as I'm aware, uh, I don't want the. As far as you're aware, it has not been debunked. Please tell me that because I don't want to lose the placebo effect. <laughs> if that's what I don't it think is. there's any been debunking of the coffee nap. No, so you're, you, you should keep coffee napping. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, so on that note, um, Jesse, can you tell us, um, um, thank you so much for coming and for talking to us. Um, yeah, thank you very much. That, that's been very, very interesting. <laughs> yeah, no, thank you guys. And, and uh, look, there are 
this is a very uh, quote unquote social justice warrior thing to say, but there are a lot of really, um, there are a lot of really smart and thoughtful trans commentators on this stuff. The conversation as it occurs online gets dumbed down, but at some point you guys should, there's people you should have on and cause they might disagree with me on this stuff and they, you know, a lot of them, obviously they should have a voice too. Absolutely. So that might be an interesting conversation at some point. Absolutely. Could, could you name some of those people for our listeners? If they yeah, would like I mean, to go and uh, investigate. Yeah, I, I do think I just had, um, she just got mad at me online about, uh, it's a long story, but I, I do think Nat Wynn or ContraPoints has done really thoughtful stuff on a lot of these subjects. And, and I've learned a lot from her and, um, you know, people like Natalie Reed, uh, she had an old blog on, is it Free Thoughts? Yeah, Natalie Reed is really good, uh, even though, again, there's so many people who do really good stuff that I get in dumb fights <laughs> with on Twitter. Maybe, maybe that says more about me than them. But I think people who are genuinely new to these issues and want a a smart, thoughtful perspective, um, ContraPoints, Natalie Wynn, those, sorry, those are the same people. ContraPoints is her YouTube channel. Uh, I did a profile of her that you can also read, but she, she's a good person to start with. She would also be, she'd be a good guest for you guys, mm. I think. Just that's Great. a good starting point, I would say. Mm-hmm. I, I don't think you would like us, but we could try. Well, but her, like, I will, I will she, reach <laughs> And she has in the past put her money where her mouth is and debated people she doesn't disagree, uh, agree with on everything. And she would probably challenge you guys or challenge me usefully on yeah. some of the stuff we say. So, um, yeah, it's worth a shot. Maybe maybe she doesn't want to do it at this point. I would I would agree that I really enjoy her yeah, videos. She's great. Um the videos particularly that less her other political commentary, but I do really enjoy her videos that are about transitioning and trans identity. So I'd absolutely recommend that. I also think she's really good on, on um, like white nationalism and, and certain forms of um I think she's good at sort of carefully breaking down why like the idea that there's such a thing as sort of a unified European identity when in fact it's just a mishmash mm-hmm. of, of who invaded who in the battle of whatever in 1215. I like, I, I feel like when I watch her videos, even on stuff where I'm already decided, I do learn stuff for what it's worth. Mm. Yes. Yes. No, the, the, I should pay more attention. <laughs> I haven't yes. watched very many, only a couple. So. Mm. No, they're <clears> very fun. And Jesse, where can people <clears throat> find you? Uh, usually, uh, so uh, people who are not on Twitter, where can they find you go. and find your work? I was going to say Twitter, but also, uh, I, I wrote, mo- I write most often for New York magazine. Um, if you Google my name and the Atlantic trans kids, you'll, you'll find both my Atlantic cover story and, uh, <laughs> several reaction pieces to it. Um, yeah, I've also, I, yes, it's called, it's called when children say they're trans. Yep. It's the, uh. That's uh, when children say they're yes. When children say they're trans, that's uh, yep. Jesse's article in the Atlantic. Yep. And if yeah, just Google my name in New York Magazine, and you'll you'll find a, I've written a lot of stuff. And uh, obviously, curious to hear from uh, yeah anyone whether they agree or disagree. Send me an email. <laughs> Great. <laughs> You've been listening to Two for Tea, the accompanying podcast for ARIO magazine. ARIO is a non-partisan political and cultural digital magazine with a universal liberal humanist slant, edited by Helen Pluckrose with the assistance of sub-editor Yours Truly. At ARIO, we hope to counter the current atmosphere of frenzied partisanship and hysteria 
with calm, well-reasoned articles and civil discussions. Both Ario and Two for Tea are entirely audience-supported. You, our readers and listeners, make these conversations possible. You can support the magazine, the podcast, or both on Patreon. Look for Ario, A-R-E-O, A for Apple, R for Robert, E for Edward, O for Orange, and Two for Tea. All patrons will get access to free monthly patron-only podcasts and other perks. Plus, by becoming a patron, you will keep these platforms alive and flourishing. Two for Tea is available on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and all other podcast subscription sites. If you're listening on a podcast app, take a moment to hit that subscriber button, give us a rating, write us a brief review, even just a couple of words. Spread the news. Thank you so much for listening. Have a wonderful week.